All right, guys. Well, we're continuing on through Exodus, and we're in chapter 20, and we're going to finish chapter 20 tonight. So we're in chapter 20, verse 18, and we're going to go down to 26. Exodus 18 to 26. God is omnipotent, right? Meaning he's all what? Powerful, right? He's all powerful. Like if we're walking in obedience to him, this fact that he's omnipotent is a blessing because we're in his will and he's using his power to love us, you know, give us wisdom and grace and strength and clarity. Like if we're not in obedience to the Lord, well, his power will cause us to cringe because we're off of the road of his will, you know, backslidden. God is a God of power and order, and that's what we've been seeing in Exodus. I'm talking about the Lord last night with my wife. We spoke about how important the Old Testament is, right? Like without the Old Testament, we don't have the full context or content of God's plan, right? And this is why it's so critical to go through all of the Bible and not just the New Testament. Uh, plus, without the Old Testament, like I really believe that um, people downgrade God's power without the Old Testament and our reverence towards him. I mean, because as we're going through the Old Testament, you guys, we really see the omnipotence of God over and over, and how fearing the Lord, standing in awe of him and amazement leads to obedience towards him. And so let's pray, and then we'll look at these uh, last verses of chapter 20 tonight. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name. We just pray that you would speak to us as a church individually. We just thank you for being so faithful to meet us right where we're at in life, Lord. We thank you where you have us in life. Pray that we'd find contentment where we are presently, Lord, and not be so future-focused that we're missing out on what you want to do now. And so we pray that you'd speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're just going to jump into in verse 18. It says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled, and they stood afar off. So here we see the nation's great fear of the presence of God. And this is like a tangible, powerful like moment here. You know, like when people talk about God working powerfully, this will be like a good example. When did God work powerfully? Well, look at this. It's powerful. I mean, all the people, it says, witnessed the thunderings and the lightnings. What came and emanated from Mount Sinai were awesome and magnificent sights and sounds together with God speaking the law. This would have made an epic sight as senses were like heightened, right? And notice it says all the people. All the people witnessed this. Lightning flashes. This is very interesting wording here because this is lightning flashes. It's actually translated like torches or flashes and or fireballs, you know, Fourth of July, right? A lot of us saw that on a smaller scale, much smaller scale. This is times a million. Lightning, just, just power. And this is the same phrasing as in Genesis 15, where the word is used for the symbol of God's presence that remember Abraham actually sees at the making of God's covenant with him. And you would think like this scene would open eyes and change hearts and save souls and cause revival. Like, yes, finally. I mean, this was powerful. The mountain smoking. I mean, crazy. Deuteronomy 5.23, uh, I'm not going to read it, but it really articulates that the mountain was on fire. Yet, here's the thing, another beautiful thing is that it was a controlled burn because it was from the Lord. So often what we see as chaos, God sees as order because he's orchestrating it. 
Like, it's like when we first moved here to, to Mobile, Alabama, we're not used to controlled burns. Like, no one does that in L.A. Like, there's nowhere to do it. But, I mean, there's no one. So when we saw smoke, we're like, something's on fire. And we drove by, and it was a guy, like, throwing his wood and plastic in the fire. And we're just like, oh, that's like a controlled burn, apparently. But that's what you do here, right? And so even with this crazy, powerful moment, it's a controlled burn. God is in control. And this reminds me of, of how the Lord met Moses. You remember? Moses was met by the Lord through a burning bush, right? And it, it got his attention. Because, not because the shrub was on fire. Honestly, it got so hot in the desert that these bushes would spontaneously combust. So that wasn't the weird thing. The weird thing was that it kept burning, and it didn't burn up. Fire drew attention with eyes. God's voice drew the attention with the ears. And now here, fire on a larger scale was getting the attention of all the people. Couldn't ignore it. And think about, I mean, think about camping. Most people, you ever notice that? Like when you go camping or when you're outside in a bonfire, I mean, a lot of the times you catch most people kind of just like looking at the fire, right? Because it's like dancing around. You just like, it kind of draws your attention. You're like, kind of spaced out on it. And you hear the wood crackle, the fire burning, but God, he gets our attention. He got the people's attention with this fire and lightning and smoke. And I'm sure the Lord has grabbed your attention in some interesting ways. You know, God often gets our attention through a situation or an unexpected circumstance, through a trial, through thoughts, through prayer. There are moments where there is no mistake that God is revealing himself, like you can't deny it. Like here on Mount Sinai. A burning mountain, fireballs, God's voice, wow. I remember there was one Christian who uh, went to our last church, and he had, he left. We never heard from him. We're like, what happened to him? I don't know. He's just gone. And one day, you show back up, we're like, hey, dude, what's up? What's going on? You know, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to say, like, where you been? But it's just like, you want to be nice and kind. You'd be like, I haven't seen you forever. Well, it turns out that, come to find out, he had backslidden, actually. He told us a story. And what brought him back to church was, a license plate frame, like a license plate frame. Like he was driving, feeling convicted of the sin that he had been in, and he stopped behind this car with a license plate frame with a Bible verse that said, God is love. And that's all it took, a light, you know, just a, just a little thing. It brought this guy back into the fold. God knows how to get our attention, whether it's a small thing like that or a booming fire on the mountain. So here's the reason... Or here's the reaction to God revealing himself. It says, they, they trembled and they stood afar off. This is a very sad statement. The awe of the people did not make their faith increase. Some people see God and witness God do amazing miracles. And they just go, okay, cool, whatever. And it doesn't really affect them. And they're dead spiritually oftentimes. This moment... This moment did not draw the people closer to God. It actually made them stand afar off. They distanced distanced themselves, basically, when they should have drawn near. This was a moment to be like, Lord, your power, wow. They distanced themselves from God because they did not get God's heart. They didn't understand his heart. And this happens a lot in today's day. How we respond to God's power matters. And as God reveals his heart to us, it should... Draw us in, not scare us away. Right? The more I draw near to the Lord, the more I see that He is love. The more I draw near to the Lord, I see His power, and it comforts me because He is love and He gives grace. 
It blows me away. Because our view of God, it results from where our heart is at. And so the people were freaked out, distanced themselves from God. In verse 19 it says, Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. So here's the request of the people. Let not God speak with us. Now you'd think Israel would feel gratitude towards God for freeing them. They were in slavery, right? They were in bondage. They heard God, God's voice like a loudspeaker from heaven. Couldn't it be more plain? He was right getting in their face. You know how someone just gets in your face? face? You can't ignore them. This is how God was trying to get their attention. Yet they weren't in awe. They were afraid. They trembled. They felt awe and dread, a negative awe and dread, instead of awe and honor. So they did not want God to speak to them. They wanted the Lord not to speak to them. Now to us, that's foreign. It's like, Lord, please speak to us. But some people are like, yeah, I don't want to, oh, they're praying again. Oh my gosh. That's a heart that's calloused and hard. When the very sight of someone praying irks you. Oftentimes, that means that person is probably in sin. But they wanted the Lord to not speak to them. An up-close encounter with God brought trouble in their hearts. An unsettled heart rather than a settled heart. But this really is a typical reaction to an up-close encounter with the Lord. Because remember Isaiah, he fell undone before God. And John fell as a dead man before the Lord. Yet God's power should cause us to praise him for, from our heart rather than having a troubled heart. And one commentator said, they said, What Israel dreaded, Moses coveted. The Israelites were free and rescued, yet they were acting like they were back in Egypt. They, act, they were acting like they were in bondage still. They weren't enslaved anymore. They were free. They should rejoice. It says, you speak to us and we will hear. So the people failed in their promise. Right? They promised to hear and obey the word of the Lord that came to them through Moses. As time went on from here, generation after generation, the people actually removed the heart uh, and intent of the law as time went on. Jesus actually exposed this shallow understanding of the law in his Sermon on the Mount. So the people continued and said, let not God speak with us lest we die. Israel drew back, you know, uh, back from God and wanted Moses to be their mediator because why? They feared death if they didn't have a mediator. They feared that God would kill them. 1 Timothy 2.5, we know there's one mediator who fulfilled in the new covenant, which is Jesus. But they were afraid. They were freaked out. And I think people are freaked out oftentimes of God when they don't have a correct understanding of him. There have been people who I've talked to in the past who they're just like, don't you think God is just angry at you all the time? Now, granted, these people are in sin and living a horrible lifestyle, but I'm like, no, he actually loves you. Love should draw you in and, and lead to repentance, Right? But they're so freaked out because they think God's going to take them out at any moment because they're so deep in their sin. So in verse 20, it says this. So we have what happened, the people's reaction. In verse 20, it says, And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So here's the purpose for this fear. The Israelites wanted to separate themselves from the presence of God, God wanted his presence to be a test for the people, so they draw near to him. 
Like, remember, this wasn't a test given by God. You just want, I just want to give this, this test to make them fail. Sometimes with your siblings, you go, oh, try to do this, and you just want them to fail. Right? You're just like, there's no way you could do it. Well, you can't do that 10 times in a row. You can't do that, you know? And so, but here, it's not like God's like, I want you to fail here. Here's a test. This God-given test would be a tool to reveal some things. Oftentimes, God tests us as a tool to reveal some things. And number one, the test revealed what kind of God they served. Not a God of perpetual wrath and constant condemnation. That's a wrong view of God. That's not a whole view of God, if you will. Rather, it's a God of holiness, goodness, and a God who was personal and grace-filled. Number two, the test revealed God's divine requirements as fear, or as far as uh, moral behavior, God's requirements. Number three, the test revealed to the people their weakness without him. They needed his grace and his rescue. It says that his fear may be before you. So there are two kinds of types of fear, okay? Two kinds of fear, and this distinguishes between the two right here. It says, do not fear. It speaks of tormenting fear that emanates from danger and guilt and condemnation. Tormenting, irritating, like fear that gnaws at you. Maybe you have some kind of phobia. You know, maybe it's clowns. Uh, maybe it's uh, spiders. Maybe it's cockroaches. You know, I don't know. Maybe you have some kind of fear that just like, oh, I'm terrified, you know? That's that kind of fear. And then it says that this fear may be before you. This speaks of the attitude and honor and reverence that leads to respect and obedience to God. God's ultimate motivation with this type of fear is love. He knows obedience to him is the best action to take. 1 John 4, 18 and 19 says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. God is perfect love. And so the fear is cast out when you realize that God is love. He doesn't just give love. He is love. Therefore, that fear will fall away. You have to remember that. God is love. So that you may not sin, he says. This is, this is super important right here. Unfortunately, Israel did not learn this lesson well. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. Looking back, is like, oh, that's why. You, it's, you understand looking back usually. So the Israelites, they backed away from God's presence, right? And this is a recipe that results in what? In sin. I'm so holy now that I'm not close to God. It just doesn't make sense, right? It, it's not how it works. Separating oneself from the Lord will lead to idolatry-filled life, a life where the object of worship is misdirect, where the object of worship is not God, something else. But here's the, here's the fact. Everyone worships something. Oh, I don't worship anything. What do you spend most of your time doing? Oh, well, I do this, this hobby. You worship that. What do you spend the most time thinking about? That's what you worship. And if it's not the Lord, it will be internal, self like self, right, or external objects, people, you know. But the bottom line here is that fearing God will keep people from sin. I can't stop sinning. I can't stop doing this. You know, I keep messing up, right? And that's what sin does, right? Doesn't it give you like a callous heart where you keep doing it over and over again, thinking that you're hiding it from people and maybe you're hiding it from everyone? But, you know, God sees that. And you, you feel convicted at first, but then you start to get complacent and you compromise. 
and then you're so deep in sin that you're like, what am I doing here? If the Israelites truly had awe for their creator God, they would not want to sin. When one is enamored with who the Lord is, they'll follow him. They'll want to follow him. Because here's the thing, awe equals desire not to sin. When you're in awe of God, you don't want to disobey him. When you're like, oh yeah, God, cool, and everything, you'll probably end up slipping up and sinning because you don't revere him like, like we should. Like, reverence of the Lord comes when we get an understanding of his power and his heart. He has the whole story of our lives in his hand. The greatness of God should floor us. It should humble us and cause us to want to be obedient to him. In a second, God could be like, think, dead. Like, I remember my last pastor, my last senior pastor, he's always used to say, you know what, I fear God, like standing in awe of him, I get it. But I'm also kind of scared of him. Not in an unhealthy way, just in a, man, he is powerful. In a second, you keep that, you stay in that sin, he takes you out. Down on this earth. That's mind-blowing. He's that powerful. And so our sin should convict us. Being in awe of God should cause us not to continue in those habitual sinning patterns, right? God is the one, His Holy Spirit is the one who can break those patterns of sin, those vicious cycles of sin. Maybe it's, it's something in your life or maybe in the past that was in your life where you're just like, I can't stop. Like this one thing just keeps coming back. I keep doing it. I can't put... I keep giving into it, you know. Guess what? God's power can break that cycle of sin. But you have to allow it to be willing and be like, Lord, you can take care of this. It looks impossible to me because I'm human. But you're God, and you can give me the power to resist. You can make a way of escape so I can run away. You can, you know, as Joseph was, you know, uh, being pursued by this, 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 this woman, the door's open. You can run out. Like, there's ways of escape. God's Holy Spirit, his power can cause us to resist those sins and not give in. can't do it on our own. But being in awe of the Lord, the point is being in awe of the Lord should cause us to not desire to sin. And we've been talking about that a lot lately, to see sin as it is, disgusting and gross and nasty and not right. So verse 21, verse 21 it says, so the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Moses draws near. So again, Israel, they were freaked out when it came to God's presence. And in contrast, Moses longed for God's presence. They were freaked out. God was like, wow. Like, how do we know this? Well, Exodus 33, I'm not going to read it, but it, you can look at Exodus 33. It really like, will show us how Moses wanted God close, wanted to be close to God. Moses was aware of God's power and his holiness, and it drew him in. It says, Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Moses loved and feared the Lord. Moses knew that God's grace connected him to the Lord. After all, think about this. Remember this. This is so crazy because sometimes when we go deeper into Exodus, we're like, well, Moses, he's so, so loving and he's praying for the people, and all this, which is it's all true. But after all, think about Moses. He was a murderer. He murdered someone. He killed someone he, who was forgiven. He was forgiven. He was restored in the desert. But he, he killed someone. And he ran away. <laughs> it's like, whoa. Yeah, that's right. Moses did do that. Moses was not perfect. He was not a sinless saint. He just understood how awesome it was to be connected to the God of the universe. So, guys, 
we're kind of like moving to like a new section now. So from Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, to Exodus 24, verse 8, we see these verses deal especially with the protection of human life and property. Uh, and so by accepting the book of the covenant, the people entered into a special relationship with Jehovah uh, and obligated themselves to obey him. Like these laws that we're going to look at are based on character of God and the unchanging moral principles expressed in the Ten Commandments. Remember, law is powerless to change human character. Law can only protect life and property by regulating human. So the enforcing of good laws does not guarantee a perfect society, but it does promote order and prevent anarchy. So look at verse 22 and 23. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. So laws concerning worship and altars. That's what this is. The purity of worship is really displayed in these next verses. Like it says, You have seen that I have talked to you from heaven. Like what's confirmed and clear here is that God spoke the Ten Commandments to Israel from heaven. The event occurred on Mount Sinai, but God spoke from heaven. Like when God audibly speaks from heaven, I would say the information relayed is probably pretty important, right? <laughs> the Lord said, you shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. So here's the thing. God did not reveal himself to Israel in any form or image. It was a voice and his creation activated that got the people's attention, not an image or form. And so 24 to 26, it says, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Last verse, 26. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So here's instructions for altars and sacrifices. An altar of earth you shall make for me. So the first law mentioned had to do with sacrifice and atonement. God began expanding his law for Israel. And these, these laws specifically for Israel, they were civil laws, right? So it's interesting because the, the first couple of civil laws given by God to Israel were in expectation that Israel would break his laws. The first laws given were like, I know you guys are going to fail, so here you go. You know? And so they need to atone for their sins through sacrifice. Right? As we continue on through Exodus and Leviticus, and Numbers, it gets really bloody. Because there are a lot of sacrifices. Because there's a lot of sin. But all this, looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice, God would ultimately provide who was and is Jesus. So the word altar, it actually comes from the Latin word altus, which means high or elevated. Right? Altars were raised to give them prominence and dignity. The Hebrew word for altar is mizbach and has a sense of a place of sacrifice or killing, which comes from the Hebrew word to kill. There's an altar of the earth. And I love how God, God never demanded like costly shrines or, or elaborate expensive monuments, right? He's like, yeah, just give me an altar of dirt. <laughs> you know, it wasn't anything flashy. It was just simple. A few wooden beams was sufficient. 
God, it says, you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, your peace offerings. And these laws really indicate that man cannot keep God's laws and must have sacrifices to deal with human insufficiency. Life is in the blood, right? Like I think is Leviticus uh, 17.11. So he says, I will come to you and bless you. And this promise was made in the context of sacrifice and atonement. So even in the law of Moses, God made the connection between trust in atoning sacrifice and the presence and blessing of God. Like our blessings from God are based on his atoning sacrifices. He says, you shall not build it of hewn stone. So if an altar was made of stone, if you didn't have any dirt, so you just had stone, it was likely uh, attention would be drawn to it. So you're not supposed to, like a stone carver, you didn't want people to, their attention would be like, oh, who carved that? You didn't want to carve and polish the stone to be so beautiful that the, the person is more interested in the person who made it than the actual God who it represents. See? And so God will share his glory with no one, and that's really the point here. God will share his glory with no one. He says, if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it now. So don't polish the altar. This is the concept of not marring something by overdoing it. Um, and speaking of not marring something by overdoing it, uh, let me just read to you 1 Corinthians. I think it's going to be on the screen. 1 Corinthians uh, 2, 4, and 5. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5 says, Paul writes, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what he's saying is that our focus shouldn't be on people our, or personalities. Like our focus should be on God and God alone. He'll share his glory with some people, no, with no one, with no one. And here's the interesting part. This last verse really was like eye-opening and pretty amazing in, to me as I was studying it and reading it. It says, nor shall you go up by the steps. It doesn't seem like a big deal nor shall you go up by the steps. Well, in other words, God wanted no display of human flesh at his place of covering uh, sacrifice. So as the priest would go up and down the steps, their ankle could be shown if they go up and down the steps. And so it's like, I don't want any flesh shown at all in this worship of me. And it's such a good picture. Like in worship, it should be no flesh. It should be spirit and truth. Steps may or could allow the legs of the priest to be seen. The point, God does not want to see our flesh in worship. Like we worship the Lord in spirit and truth. Spirit as opposed to flesh. Truth as opposed to deception or just feelings. And so we know from Leviticus and Ezekiel that later on actually steps were allowed to be built. They were allowed to be built. But the priests were instructed to wear linen undershorts. So you couldn't actually see the ankles or the flesh. And I love that. Like, even in our lives, and specifically in worship, like, it shouldn't be anything about the flesh. It shouldn't be about how we sound or look. or what, None of that stuff matters, man. What matters is that our hearts are worshiping God in spirit and truth. And there's no flesh there. There's no showy anything. God's like, make me a big pile of dirt and call that my altar. It's all good. If you make it out of stone, don't polish it and make it look beautiful because then the attention will be on the carver. I want your attention on me. 
That's what God is saying. God is holy, right? He's set apart, and he wants us to worship him and him alone and not be consumed with people or places or things around us, but only be consumed with him. God is holy, and we worship him, not in the flesh, spirit and in truth. Amen?